This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, John Barquette. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, John Barquette, the Director of Policy Affairs at Willis Towers Watson and an alumnus of the Wharton Healthcare Management MBA program. Overtreatment, that is the provision of healthcare that we can't possibly help that can't possibly help a patient, is a big problem in the American healthcare system. Estimates suggest overtreatment added roughly $200 billion to our nation's healthcare tab in 2011. On today's show, we'll talk to three leaders of physician organizations who spent the last five years running campaigns that discourage overtreatment by encouraging physicians, other clinicians, and patients to choose wisely when deciding on a course of treatment. If you'd like to join our discussion at any time during the hour, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. First, I'd like to introduce Daniel Wolfson, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, uh, which is a supporting organization of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Uh, Daniel, thank you for joining me in the studio. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, Also in the studio is Dr. Akshat Kumar, an, an internal medicine physician at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania who has experience in leading campaigns uh, to choose wisely uh, within the hospital setting. Welcome, Akshat. Yeah, thank you. And by phone is Dr. Daisy Smith. Uh, Daisy is the Vice President of Clinical Programs for the American College of Physicians. Uh, Daisy, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'll start off with my first question for uh, Daniel. Um, overtreatment, just, just how big of a problem is this in American medicine today? Well, you said it. It's $210 billion uh, of of care that's not beneficial to the patient. And it's really not just a cost issue. It's really a quality of care issue, a safety issue. Um, putting people at harm's way when they don't need to be, the potential harm of tests and procedures is just unnecessary uh, when it's not indicated. Um, and... Um, I think we lose the trust of the American people uh, when we're not doing care that's in their best interest. Um, can you explain to us, uh, Daniel, like, why does it occur? It's, it seems like an odd thing to think, wait a minute, my, my doctor is doing stuff that I don't need? How does that happen? There's a lot of reasons for overtreatment, and it's complicated. Um, people look at uh, malpractice and uh, defensive medicine. They look at fee-for-service medicine um, rewarding volume over value. I, I think it's more about how physicians are trained hmm. uh, to be very thorough and to leave no rock unturned. And that gets ingrained in physicians at a very early age and persists throughout their career. Um, I think all those things are necessary. We need to have payment reform. We need probably malpractice reform. Uh, But I think we also need to start, and uh, I'm sure Daisy will refer to this, um, from the very beginning Mm -hmm. uh, in the training space, um, training physicians in a a very different way, um, going from no rock unturned uh, to appropriateness of care. Now, Daisy, Daniel mentioned that there's a there's a quality issue here, a quality of care issue. It's not just a cost issue, and that that might uh, 
preview the answer to my next question, which I'd like to ask you, um, which is like, why is this a problem necessarily? I mean, what's wrong with being extra cautious when it comes to treating a patient? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think I would echo uh, what Daniel said, which is that the main reason really is that overtreatment really harms patients. Uh, and they're not only the immediate harms that are associated initially with the treatment. For instance, if you have a side effect to an antibiotic that you're prescribed unnecessarily, but they're also downstream harms uh, because we know medical care begets more medical care. So there are additional tests and treatments uh, that you might be uh, at risk of getting harmed from. And then, um, and then not only that, but there are some harms out there that are sort of more difficult, even more difficult to measure, which are the harm of overdiagnosing a patient, uh, taking someone from being the worried well to having a diagnosis. Um, and there's the opportunity cost of the time and money that patients and families spend addressing uh, this care that is really unnecessary. So to me, you know, the, uh, and to our, the American College of Physicians, the biggest issue is really about it's a patient safety issue. Uh, and if we've gone so far to say is overtreatment is a medical error. So, um, you know, it's a serious problem that needs to be addressed. Not, not to belabor the point, but Daisy, make this really clear for me and, and for our listeners. Give me an example of how uh, overtreatment uh, can, can lead to harm. So I mentioned antibiotic overuse, and uh, there's actually some data out there that about 30% of antibiotics used in the hospital are uh, unnecessary, and antibiotic use can put you at risk for a Clostridium difficile infection, which is a very severe uh, and potentially life-threatening infection. Uh, that many patients are not aware of and they don't know about uh, that can end in uh, total colectomy, death, septic shock. Um, so everything that we do carries a certain degree of risk. Um, so it makes sense to cut down on unnecessary antibiotic use for an individual patient, but also um, it breeds antibiotic resistance. So that's a specific example uh, about how folks can be harmed by overuse. Akshat? Uh, yes, uh, just to add to that point and giving a very specific example of how uh, overtreatment can be harmful with the patient. I had a patient, uh, a 90-year-old woman who came with a fall, uh, had a fracture. She got a bunch of scans to make sure there's no other fracture, and they found a tumor in the, in the abdomen. Uh, that led to increased hospital stay by three days. Uh, that led to an unnecessary surgery. One can argue that was required. Uh, but at the end of it, no value was added. Mm. Uh, and uh, so this is called vomit in medical terminology, which is victims of unnecessary medical tests. Like one test leads to the other, and that leads to more procedures, mm. uh, and that can be harmful. So, so Annie, go ahead. They about incidentals. incidentals. Incidentally, you find something that's not clinically significant, mm. but you need to act on it because you discovered it. And so incidentally, we're, we're spending $200 billion more than we need to, and, and patients are being harmed. So let me ask you this. So... Um, Daniel, you mentioned that you thought that through education, um, we might be able to change uh, how much we spend and how and, the, and, the, and improve the care we provide um, on top of this today's baseline, which involves overtreatment. And you've been a leader of a campaign to do that. Tell us about the Choosing Wisely campaign. So Choosing Wisely campaign... Um, started in 2012 by asking specialty societies 
to identify things, tests and procedures where the risk uh, didn't uh, outweigh the benefits. Um, we started uh, with nine, including the American College of Physicians, Daisy's, uh, Daisy Smith's organization, and we grew into 80, and we have uh, uh, over 500 recommendations. So what I think it did was to start a conversation between patients and physicians and physicians and physicians and the American public about the problem of overtreatment. And by identifying these specific tests and procedures, it made it very concrete. You know, you can talk about it uh, the con- you know, conceptually, but to make it concrete, I think, was important to have this conversation really take root and take meaning amongst the public. Um, Daisy, I, I looked up what the American College of Physicians uh, put down on their list of uh, services, and, and I wonder if you could walk me, walk me through one or two of them. Uh, there was one that uh, had to do with um, doing uh, imaging uh, for low back pain, or for back pain, I should say. Can you talk me, talk me through that? Sure. So um, we, around the same time, a little bit before the Choosing Wisely campaign was launched, um, the American College of Physicians launched our high-value care initiative. So it was around 2010. And the idea was to really educate clinicians to balance the potential benefits of a given test or treatment with its harms and costs, with the ultimate goal, really, of improving outcomes. So we were so excited uh, when the ABIM Foundation invited us to submit a list uh, of uh, of things that doctors and patients should question routinely doing. And um, imaging for low back pain uh, was uh, one of the things that really rose uh, to the top of our list. Again, there's um, probably about 26% of advanced imaging studies are unnecessary, and those are big ticket items. And... um, MRI scanning for low back pain or any type of back imaging um, in patients that don't have um, high risk factors or um, serious, very concerning um, signs and symptoms is really unnecessary care. And And there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you treat these patients conservatively at six weeks, the ones who get imaged and don't imaged and don't have imaging end up doing the same as well as if you take healthy people and you image their back, you will have um, findings that may or may not be clinically significant. Uh, as Daniel mentioned before, uh, that's where you get into this sort of overdiagnosis, and then somebody who's a relatively normal, you know, is, a, is a normal person will say, oh, I have degenerative disc disease in my back. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to measure the burden of that, but, uh, but that really does have an impact, I think, on patients' well-being and their perception of their health, which is important. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Today we're discussing how to reduce overtreatment. My guests are Daniel Wolfson, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the ABIM Foundation, Dr. Daisy Smith, the Vice President of Clinical Programs for the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Aksha Kumar of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. If you'd like to join our discussion, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Daisy, I want to ask you, uh, you mentioned the the high-value care initiative that the American College of Physicians uh, is put on. So that started in 2010. And where are you today in that initiative? Well, we have uh, developed uh, a number of 
guidelines, best practice advice papers, curricula uh, that um, are all the way from uh, medical students through residents, through fellows to practicing physicians. We've done a number of live trainings, and I agree with what Daniel said, uh, that training and education is essential uh, and very important, but uh, we don't think it really is uh, sufficient because we think that there are cultural changes that really need to happen and almost uh, transformation and redesign uh, of the cultures of where we're uh, delivering care. Uh, we think that um, that quality improvement initiatives are really the way to move the needle in this, um, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what Akshat is doing at uh, the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in terms of projects, because it sounds like he's been involved in some, um, but also partnering with patients, uh, because we didn't really talk about patient expectation and patient requests. Um, so we think that getting clinicians to partner with patients to really um, change the conversation around uh, what care is necessary and what care is appropriate is really the way to go. So where we're moving in the future is really into uh, the quality improvement um, uh, space. So we're continuing to update our curricula and we have online cases. Again, we want to get to, uh, we want to get in the examination room uh, and at the bedside um, of patients to really uh, try to move the needle because we don't think we can do it in the classroom alone. Aksha, tell, tell me about some of these, uh, how you're taking information and educational materials and implementing them in the hospital. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm right now studying at Wharton, so slightly removed, but uh, great question. And Daisy mentioned two points. Uh, one is about culture. Another is about, which I'm learning here, is the alignment between clinical medicine and business of medicine. So just briefly speak about both. Uh, one, in the culture part, as residents, when we were taught choosing wisely, we, we were doing that. But as soon as we graduate to become attendings, uh, the the compliance with with the guidelines is not that much. Mm. Uh, so that's one part. I think that the reason part of it is that the alignment between uh, the business of medicine and the, the art of medicine is yet not there. Like uh, it's much faster to order an MRI mm -hmm. or to order a battery of tests than to do the full history and physical, which I was trained adds 95% of the value. Uh, similarly, it's much uh, uh, cost-wise, it's much easier to order all the tests because you're not worried that five years down the line or 10 years down the line, you will be sued. Hmm. So in, so to change the culture of physicians uh, on the front lines, uh, we have to give equal priority to both the education and also uh, how it how it impacts their culture and, and what business sense it makes for private doctors. Hmm. Oh, this is a lot to unpack, actually. So the American College of Physicians, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, both have launched campaigns to educate clinicians and other participants, patients and non-physician non clinicians, about uh, how to make more judicious decisions when uh, uh, caring for patients. And an educational campaign and appealing to the professionalism, professionalism of clinicians, it, that seems very important to me. It seems like you need to give clinicians the tools to, to understand how they might make different decisions. Um, but, you know, Daisy, you, you use the word, um, you know, sort of sufficient. It's not, it's not sufficient. That maybe just a campaign in and of itself is not sufficient. And I'm curious, in your experience of implementing these campaigns in the last five years, 
What have been the successes that you'd point to with this campaign and education? And where is it that you think overtreatment will continue to persist because a campaign is is not enough? And I'll ask Daniel to address that first. Well, I think some of our aims, John, were to get physicians engaged in this problem and not be on the sidelines and take proactive action. And that was about awareness uh, and engagement. But that is not sufficient. Um, you have to have that couple, that cultural change, coupled with system change. These are habits. And people need uh, uh, reminders uh, of different ways of doing uh, procedures, tests. So cu- culture alone will not change. Culture, engagement need to be coupled with really system changes. I'll give you some examples. One one example is providing data to physicians about their performance mm. compared to another doctor. Mm. Um, changing order order sets. We have order sets for labs that when a when a patient comes in, it's an order set has every lab test on it. Change that, mm. and you change the system, or design uh, alerts in uh, in clinical decision supports that reminds physicians either at the time of care or uh, uh, retrospectively uh, about their performance. So, you know, uh, people keep saying to me, uh, boy, has choosing wisely been successful? Mm. And I said, well, it's been successful in what it was trying to achieve. Mm. And trying to achieve a a normalized conversation about overtreatment because the public and physicians would push back when you talked about overtreatment as something that started with our rationing. Hmm. And we tried to normalize the conversation so we could have the conversation. Now it's really time to couple operational science, quality improvement science, lean thinking with people, physicians who are now engaged and have different attitudes now about addressing overtreatment. Hmm. But Choosing Wisely as a campaign was not a set of quality improvement principles. Right. It was really about changing the culture uh, and really getting physicians engaged because oftentimes uh, you do a quality improvement activity and the why, you know, the why are you doing this has not been answered. Right. And so we see resistance and we see workarounds and we see quality improvement efforts that fail mm. because – you know, the clinical team is not really on board because they didn't know why. And why is about values uh, and why you're doing something. Is it for some hidden agenda because uh, you want to save money? Or are you doing it in the best interest of the patient? And we think we're, you're doing it in the best interest of the patient if you're focusing on quality, if you're focusing on safety, and you're focusing on potential harm. Uh, Daisy Smith, can I ask you to comment on the – high-value uh, care initiative from the ACP. Would you agree with Daniel? And, and am I right to, to be um, talking about both choosing wisely and the high-value care initiative in the, in the same breath? Yes, um, absolutely. I think um, I think they're very similar initiatives, uh, and uh, so I think it makes sense. And they also started around uh, the same time. Um, our our the high value care initiative was not just about not doing things um, that were not indicated, but also included um, trying to raise the rates of. 
preventive measures like vaccination uh, that really do bring a high value. So again, the focus wasn't on saving money, but on um, improving outcomes. But I wanted to build on something uh, that Daniel said. So I think what we need to do beyond education is really figure out how to make it easy for clinicians and patients to do the right thing uh, and, um, and to, uh, to really be more judicious in, how, um, in, in what tests they order and what treatments they order. But de-implementation is really hard work, and the process of de-implementing, uh, de-escalating, de-intensificating de- 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 therapy, is it's just a different process, and I don't think we know as much about that. Um, and also, you know, the way that we're trained, it's more care is better care, and that's sort of the perception. Uh, and we're, we're really trained, even when I see a patient with asthma, I, I can tell that, you know, people are much more comfortable, myself included, with adding on medicines rather than taking medicines away. Um, so I think we need to make it easy and we have to build into the workflow uh, moments where people, where teams can pause and say, wait, is this test going to change what we do for a patient? Um, uh, or should we consider simplifying this medical regimen for this elderly patient uh, who may have some risk factors? And we've had some successes. Uh, there was a, a project called SOAP-V that was rolled out in four different medical schools where they actually empowered the medical student to speak up on rounds and gave them a little bit of training, and they would be trained just to ask the question at the moment the order was being put in the computer, how is this going to change? Um, how is this going to change uh, the the you know plan of care for the patient? Is this test really indicated? And um, and that project really showed some success um, that uh, filtered down to the residents and the attendings on the team. So I think it doesn't always have to be a computer solution or a fancy tech solution. It's really about starting the conversation at the point where care happens. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Today we're discussing how to reduce overtreatment. My guests are Daniel Wolfson of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, Dr. Daisy Smith, the Vice President of Clinical Programs for the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Akshat Kumar of the University of Pennsylvania. We got a uh, caller uh, who left a question for us and for the panel to answer. The question is about screening for colon cancer. And uh, the caller wanted to know whether other uh, tests are just as effective as colonoscopies are. And uh, I, I guess I want to go to Daisy here first. T- can, you, can you address this caller's concern? T- talk, talk us through overtreatment in screening for colon cancer. What, what's the ground, like what's going on on the ground right now? Well, um, the ground, as usual, uh, with all our advances in medical science and evidence-based medicine, is uh, shifting as we speak. Uh, So colon cancer screening is uh, one of the things that the American College of Physicians really strongly uh, encourages with our clinical guidelines. Uh, It's one of those uh, cancer screening tests that sort of bubbles to the top. Uh, in terms of being exceptionally important, though uh, there are some new uh, stool tests for colon cancer screening that have been approved uh, for colon cancer screening in lieu of colonoscopy, which is um, time-consuming, can be uh, relatively expensive, and has a very uncomfortable prep associated with it. 
Um, so uh, the USPSTF, uh, the um, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, has not um, has not shifted yet uh, to fully embrace uh, the new stool tests that are available and in the guidelines in um, in Canada and Europe yet. Uh, but hopefully, um, that you know the shift will be happening soon, so that not everybody needs a colonoscopy, and that there may be these next generation of stool tests uh, for those folks who don't want to go through colonoscopy. There are still stool tests that are available now that you can try, and if they end up detecting blood in your stool, then you can get a colonoscopy. So it sort of decreases the number of folks who need colonoscopies. But really, of all the cancer screening tests that we have, um, colon cancer screening is definitely one of the most efficacious and life-saving um, cancer screening tests that we have out there. Daniel Olson, you want to comment? Could, couldn't agree more about its effectiveness and um, I'm due for one myself, um, but it can also get overused, um, and there are guidelines that say it should be done uh, once every 10 years uh, unless there's polyps uh, seen, and um, and then it's every five years, and there's indications. And, of course, it's always about the conversation between the patient and the physician. These are not hard and fast rules, and there needs to be a shared decision-making uh, but I do think it shows that technology can get overutilized um, and, and, and used too often to the detriment of the patient without getting any yield for it. So if you're doing a colonoscopy and you're, you're coming out with a no report, there's no evidence, and you're doing it more, you're just putting it yourself at harm's, harm's way. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going through an a, you know, uncomfortable procedure. Um, so I think it's an example of people are sometimes hooked on technology hmm. uh, to the detriment of their health. And when you say people, do you, are you suggesting that is the clinician or the patient? I think it's sometimes both. both. Um, sometimes it's the patient uh, demanding it, although I think that in this case it's less This the is patient. a tough example. Yeah, right. It's a tough example. Yeah. I think it's more uh, the physician uh, wanting to be uh, overly cautious. Yep. Um, uh, regarding the recommendations or unaware of the recommendations that are that are changing uh, from time to time. Daisy, walk us through what would happen here. Let's say let's say we we come up with a better test uh, to indicate whether or not someone's at risk of having colon cancer. It's a non-invasive test that we can do prior to a colonoscopy. What type of certainty do we get uh, as a as a society, or at least as a medical society, that that test is Really, more you know, really something that should be done before you do a colonoscopy, and then how does that information disseminate out into clinicians who are seeing, you know, seeing patients, seeing our listeners, uh, who who are coming in for for uh, annual checkups? Right. I mean, this is this is the double-edged sword of evidence-based medicine. So, colon cancer is a relatively um, slowly developing disease, so you need studies that. Um, last uh, quite a long time and have a long degree of follow-up, which are expensive uh, to have. So you need the, the, the evidence base of the studies that are longitudinal. In our guidelines development process, then uh, we do a systematic review and take a look at the evidence and grade the evidence, uh, but, and then end up developing a guideline. All our guideline, clinical guidelines that the American College of Physicians puts out also uh, include uh, patient summaries so that patients can be um, educated about what the new findings are. Um, 
but we know that guideline adoption in and of itself, um, we really need to work on our ability to accelerate the uptake of new guidelines. And honestly, guidelines in and of themselves um, do not necessarily uh, always prevent uh, overuse. <laughs> sometimes they promote. Uh, sometimes they promote it. So uh, the American um, Heart Association and the ACC just came out with a new guideline about hypertension that was announced yesterday, and they basically changed the definition of hypertension, mm. um, going to uh, I think it's. Uh, 46% of the American public will now have, uh, have hypertension based on how this new guideline changes the definition. So I think we do need to be careful as we roll out uh, clinical evidence-based clinical guidelines and um, also performance measurement, which we haven't touched on yet, uh, because uh, these things can result in overdiagnosis and um, overtreatment. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about how to reduce overtreatment with Daniel Wolfson, Daisy Smith, and Akshat Kumar. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is John Barquette. Welcome back to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Uh, today, we're discussing overtreatment and campaigns to reduce it among physicians. My guests today are Daniel Wolfson, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, uh, Dr. Daisy Smith, the Vice President of Clinical Programs for the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Akshat Kumar of the University of Pennsylvania. If you'd like to join the discussion, please give us a call at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. Nine four two seven eight six six. I want to ask the panel, uh, why is it that we can't just stop paying for overtreatment? If I go to a clinician and they uh, tell me I need a test and that test was unnecessary, uh, why can't I as a patient, why can't my insurance company just say, hey, doc, uh, we don't, that wasn't necessary and, and we're not going to pay for it? Uh, let, Daisy, let's, let's go to you first. Sure. I think uh, one of the things is that um, it's it's not always clear. A lot of medicine is practiced in the gray zone where there's not a for sure indication and a for sure contraindication, but that, um, as Daniel Wolfson mentioned before, that it needs to be an individualized shared decision-making uh, process between the patient and the clinician. And uh, that ability to individualize is really essential and core to the physician-patient relationship. Um, so when we try to do studies and develop measures of overuse, it is really hard looking at the type of data that we have to look for overuse um, to really get the nuance of, of that interaction. I think um, there are some really exciting measures that are coming out. Um, Martin McCary from Hopkins has developed these um, overuse measures that look at um, folks who are outliers uh, with specific um, procedure-based care and then show basically show those physicians their data and how they relate to the mean and educate them about trying to um, be more in the range. So again, less looking at individual uh, 
uh, physician measures, but more saying, you know, 60% of the time, are you within uh, the range at which you should be doing a particular procedure? Um, but I think the issue is a lot about uh, measurement and also who makes the assessment about whether something is indicated or not indicated. I get that it's it's hard to step in between the. I mean, who would want anyone, a payer or insurance company, to step in between a patient and their provider uh, and tell them, you know, no, what you're doing is wrong. You know, we're not going to pay for this. That 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 sounds pretty harsh. And yet, all of us pay health insurance premiums. Those premiums cover the care that's provided to everybody who is in the same plan as us. And there's got to be some way, maybe it's not direct intervention, but some way to discourage over-treatment because it's it's low or it's not just low-value care. You guys have even suggested that it's it's worse than that. It's, it's harmful care. Uh, so how, how can we go about providing incentives on top of education and on top of these campaigns and on top of culture change to make sure that we're covering all our bases here because none of us want to be paying more premium dollars to, to buy a product, an inefficient product from the healthcare system. Daniel Wolfson. So I agree with Daisy. Um, the recommendations are clinically nuanced and they have uh, red flags or exceptions. Uh, so it's hard to just legislate across the board that shouldn't be covered because mm-hmm. all these procedures are uh, effective under given clinical uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. However, uh, there's been a a wave of thinking about how can you uh, value a test or procedure over another one given its effectiveness. So if I was able to say, well, um, stents, for instance, which have just been under attacked, are not as, as valuable as some other procedure, uh, should there be a higher deductible and copayment for that procedure that has low value care? Um, In other words, you, want to, you were suggesting maybe there should be an incentive for the patient, patient to and the, push back against their clinician, right? And this is something called value based insurance that um, Mark Fendrick at the University of Michigan is advancing. Um, it's yet to be proven, but I think it's worth looking at. Uh, but done carefully um, and done incrementally because we don't know exactly how, what the unintended consequences might be. Uh, But it's something um, that I'm not a big proponent of. I think we put a lot on the shoulders of patients Mm -hmm. and and not enough probably uh, on the the physician. The patients are sick and uh, vulnerable at the time uh, mostly and and to put them in a, a, a decision point about whether they'll pay more money for something, yeah. uh, I, th- I think is not the right approach. Let me see if I could get at this question another way. Um, maybe the way to provide incentives for the healthcare system, for, for clinicians, to not engage in overtreatment. Maybe it's not directly saying, oh, we, 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 we saw that you ordered this test for this person on this day at that place of service, and, and it was unnecessary. Maybe instead it's, just, it's to look at the whole body of work of a patient, excuse me, of a maybe not just one clinician, but of say a practice, or a healthcare system, or a, a managed care organization. Um, but I think we are doing some of that stuff today. There is p- payment reform was a big part of the Affordable Care Act. Private insurers all have um, uh, programs in place to try to encourage providers to offer more efficient care that's still high quality. Are, are those efforts? Uh, do those efforts dovetail with the campaigns that you guys are running? 
So, you know, what I think some of these payment reform and uh, they're not all the same, but what we're hope you would hope they would do would give autonomy and discretion to the physician and uh, autonomy to the patient. Um, some payment reform is just um, just you know a little bit of tweaking of a fee for service system. Yeah. And uh, what I've seen uh, work well is a fully capitated system um, and where physicians have the freedom and the discretion to make decisions that they think are in the best interest of the patient. Um, And um, I think those arrangements uh, have been tested in health maintenance organizations, prepaid group practices for decades and have worked well. And physicians in those systems are very satisfied and so are their patients. Um, and we have gone away from that kind of payment, uh, but now you see approaches um, going back to that. Because um, I do think in those systems, there is much more physician autonomy and patient autonomy. Let me go back to Daisy then. I, um, Daniel mentioned different ways of paying providers. Fee-for-service is a common way that we, all, that we pay for care today services done and uh, clinician gets paid for it. Um, capitation is another way. That word comes from the word per capita. And uh, in, a, in a capitation arrangement, providers get paid a fixed amount per person, per capita, each month um, for all the care that they provide. And if they can provide care for less than that amount, then they can be profitable. And if, if it's more, then uh, they'll have to eat the costs. And under those two arrangements, the you know providers face different incentives. Under fee for service, the, in, you know, the incentive is to do more. Under capitation, is to do less. Uh, I'm still trying to get at to, to push both of you, Daniel and Daisy, on whether or not the campaigns that you're running to encourage providers to not engage in overtreatment. Um, your goals for those campaigns may be. They're important to define, and they may be narrower than reducing overtreatment. It may just be about giving clinicians the tools to have conversations to start thinking about whether or not we need to be doing all this care. Right. But if, but if I'm in the car listening right now to this show, I'm not sure I'm as concerned about that as I am about what my premium is going to be because I'm in the middle of open enrollment, and I'm looking at my options, and it's all very expensive. And I'm hoping that the people who think about the healthcare system are trying to set it up so that we're just getting just the right amount of care and not any more than we, than we need to pay for it. And I'm asking both of you, Daisy and Daniel, right now to say, one, thank you for your work, but two, what else do you need from the system to reduce over-treatment, not, not just to be successful in your campaigns? And, and what part does how we pay clinicians play in that? And Daisy, I'll, I'll go to you first. Well, I do think uh, that the shift to value-based payment for clinicians from the fee-for-service model uh, is a step in the right direction. And, um, and you know, there are some uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation models that are out there that have really shown uh, when there is an investment uh, in primary care uh, that um, and, and with a focus on patient outcomes, instead of uh, just paying clinicians 
for um, doing more uh, in the fee-for-service world um, that uh, patient outcomes do improve and um, in some instances costs go down. I don't think that we have it figured out perfectly yet. Um, and what we need to do is keep testing uh, these innovations and keep improving our measures and moving from uh, performance measurement that's more based on uh, process measures and more on outcomes measures. So a lot of it is predicated on really being able to accurately assess what, you know, high value care, right? What is uh, that a patient is having, is getting high value care and having um, the outcomes that you need. So I think we've made a huge step in the right direction. What's challenging to our 152,000 members who are living in this world is that many of them have feet in both canoes. So they're still part of their practice is still fee-for-service, and then part of it um, uh, may be under this value-based payment umbrella. And our job as a professional organization is to give them the tools to try to, um, to evolve and to move in a direction where they can be successful. Uh, what's concerning and what we don't want is for, um, for um, docs to uh, get too frustrated uh, with the performance measurement space and, um, and either slow down their practice or retire from practice altogether. Because with our aging population, we need an engaged and innovative um, and problem-solving workforce. Uh, and that is really important. So I, I think, um, you know, all of our organizations have big roles to play in, in helping um, our clinicians meet the needs of, of uh, the patients. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I, I, I would, there's no panacea. Um, we, we see organizations that are capitated and their overuse is equal to the fee-for-service. And these are very good organizations. There's not a panacea. Uh, the Choosing Wisely campaign is a tool. It's a tool that has concrete actions. It has a spirit about professionalism uh, and engagement of physicians. And we're just a tool. And it's other people have to take up this tool and bring it forward. You, you know, I'm, I'm not in a delivery system. And the delivery systems are where the campaign needs to go now. And it'll get aided. It'll get aided by lots of things. It'll get aided by payment reform, attitudinal reform, um, you know, sustainability of, of the healthcare system, it won't be one thing. Yeah. And hopefully these things are coordinated yeah. and work together and not against each other. And there are many organizations out there kind of, you know, working towards a, a value-based system yeah. where we don't have waste and we're getting the most out of the system. And we're frankly making care cheaper uh, because it's not sustainable now. It's not just a trend that we're trying to decrease, it's to make it cheaper. Yep. And uh, we need to do that, and we can. You can take not only 10, 12, uh, 210 billion out of the system, when you put in fraud and abuse and administrative waste, you're talking about 750 billion. And with that 750 billion, we can, we can do the right kind of care, and we can do it for less. Yeah. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM Channel 111. Today, we're discussing how to reduce over-treatment. My guests are Daniel Wolfson of the ABIM Foundation, Dr. Daisy Smith of the American College of Physicians, and Dr. Akshat Kumar of the University of Pennsylvania. If you'd like to join our discussion, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866.
seems there's one other element that we have not yet touched on that would be a crucial part of reducing overtreatment. That's leadership. And I'm thinking here of uh, a health system or a, a, a group practice and who has heard from Daniel's Choosing Wisely campaign, and they get that there's now improved ways to have conversations around what the appropriate care is. And they've heard from Daisy Smith's Healthcare Value Initiative, and so they've, and they've seen the list of items that are higher value versus lower value. And they've engaged with private insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid on new ways to pay physicians that reward uh, providing value-based care. But at the end of the day, there's still system change and care redesign and organizational redevelopment that has to go on within a practice or a health system or hospital. And and that takes leadership. And we talk about that a lot on, on this show and on this channel. And I guess I'll ask Daisy first. Um, what are the challenges uh, involving leadership that you've seen when you look at organizations trying to implement these types of reforms uh, and and is our healthcare system equipped today with the leaders that can take us uh, to a, a world where we're providing uh, appropriate treatment, not overtreatment? Well, um, that's definitely a challenging question to ask. Uh, I definitely, I do think uh, that there are leaders out there uh, who are really invested and engaged in trying to solve this. I think we see some health systems that rise above. Uh, that have really exceptional leadership and have taken this on as a culture. Uh, one of the biggest challenges, I think, to leadership is even when the C-suite of a health system is sort of on board, one of the biggest challenges they have is in really engaging their clinicians in trying to move the needle. And even more, uh, e- even more challenging uh, and in its infancy really is meaningfully engaging the patients. So I think um, the secret sauce is really figuring out how to engage and motivate the clinicians and the patients to partner to address the problem. And I don't mean to put um, unnecessary additional burden on patients um, because I know they're already uh, paying more out of pocket uh, than ever before for their health care and the administrative burdens on them just navigating the system are considerable. If those two entities really work together with leadership, that is where we're going to find the really innovative solutions. I can't tell you, about 60% of the time, all of, all of our educational materials are co-developed with patients at the table uh, because I got tired of developing them first, having them vetted by patients, and then changing 60% of it. Um, so the folks who are receiving the care are the ones who are going to ha- be having some really amazing ideas about how we need to redesign and transform it. Daniel Wolfson. So I think it starts with vision. And, um, you know, we hear from CEOs of health systems that what they want to do is do more of the ones that they have larger margins and less of the ones that have smaller margins. That's not leadership. Leadership has a vision around health and health care, um, a commitment to uh, being as as lean as possible, as effective as possible, looking for solutions in communities. Um, and so and then really, you know, putting the resources that it will take uh, to make their system um, much more lean and effective and efficient. 
Um, but it, it, it's got to come from a clear sense of not just the CEO suite, but the board of directors, the mm-hmm. governance structure that really give a clear message from top to bottom, Mm -hmm. that we're going to get rid of waste. We're going to do the right things. We're going to do more of what has an impact on health and health care, and we're going to do less of the things that are not effective, don't have value, either to patients or their health. And unless that comes from leadership and the resources, and the resources needed to do this are not small. They're they're substantial. And when you see institutions doing it, they have made a major investment in this. And they have aligned their values. They've aligned the payment system. They've aligned and engaged their physicians. And it is happening across the country. Mm -hmm. But there are not enough. It's not happening enough because people are still – as Daisy said, they have one foot in fee-for-service and one foot in a value-based, and they need to have both feet in one canoe. Akshat Kumar, you you have been in uh, academic medical settings recently. What examples of good leadership have you seen there? And, and Or maybe tell us what examples of bad leadership you've seen there. But either way, give us your insights. Yep, sure. So there is, um, I think there's one other type of leadership, uh, you know, like, uh, in, which has a lot of potential, that of change management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen a lot of disconnect between the C-suite and the physicians on the ground. Uh, I strongly, like 600,000 physicians in the U.S. control 3 trillion economy. Mm. So it's okay to talk about systems level, but it's at the physician level and the patient level that where it becomes local. So I strongly believe in the potential of making physicians equal partner in this. Uh, like, like, Daisy, uh, like, like Daniel mentioned that if you give them objective data at the point of care, if you empower them at the point of care, if you make it easier for them and for the patient to engage in conversations that they should, uh, they will innovate on them by themselves. You know, uh, So I strongly believe in the potential of empowering physicians at the point of care rather than a top-down approach uh, to to make change happen. Got it. So we're, we've got about five minutes left in the show here, maybe maybe three minutes on that. We're getting close to the end. I have uh, one question for you, Daniel, and and for you, Daisy, which is what is, you know, you're both about five to seven years into your campaigns. You've recently taken stock of them and talked about what you think the next five years will look like. Daniel, I'll start with you. Where is Choosing Wisely going in the next five years? So, uh, you know, massive change takes 15 years, um, and we're five years into this. Um, and I think five years from now, we'll be at a much different place as far as unnecessary care and services, because I think that people will see a clear pathway uh, to reduce use. They'll see other examples, and they'll see that the world is changing, and they need to change with it. So I think in five years, we should be done. Uh, we should have done what we set out to do. And, but, it's again, it's going to be largely dependent whether people take up the tools um, and see that their way towards that. If they don't, then I think, you know, shame on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't blame the tool. Uh, the tool is a good tool, uh, but it just has to be um, taken up by more people um, in an earnest way uh, with resources dedicated, not a PR job, but really massive, you know, not even just single now, we see a lot of single things. I can tell you examples of antibiotic use reduced. It's got to be massive. It's got to be across the board. Mm-hmm. And, and really, it's got to be a mindset of the physician and the, and, and the C-suite. 
for every kind of procedure. And if and pe- test. people listening to this show want to help you in your quest, how can they contact you or reach or, or get in touch with the Well, they can Wisely go to campaign. our uh, www.choosingwisely site. There's five questions that we have for patients. You know, is there other options? Uh, how much does it cost? Um, you know, and so they need to ask the questions to their physicians, and we have those five questions through Consumer Reports, and you can go on our website and follow those at www.choosingwisely.org. Thank you. Uh, Daisy Smith, tell us, what's the next five? You have about 60 seconds. What's the next five years look like? Well, the next five years is really about um, helping uh, engaging physicians and patients um, on the ground uh, in, and really helping them through peer coaching and uh, learning collaboratives and improving the measurement space. We want to accelerate that that time period between clinical guidelines and implementation uh, slash de-implementation. And uh, we're going to be putting resources to really help uh, support that work on the ground while continuing to update all our educational offerings. And where can they find the American College of Physicians? Uh, so uh, acponline.org uh, backslash high value care and uh, and we also have a lot of uh, patient information uh, for the patients who are listening uh, that can help them be part of the solution. Okay. Daniel, Daisy, Akshat, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you'll join us again someday. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Bye-bye. This show will be repeated throughout the week. You can read more about our shows and hosts on the SiriusXM website, SiriusXM.com slash Business Radio. I'd like to thank our producer, Dana Cash, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, uh, our research assistant, Octavia Sun, and my head of quality control, Megan Untalon-Barquette. Uh, if you have a question for us or an idea for a segment, you can write to our email address, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. You can follow me at J.M. Barquette. You've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm John Barquette. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.